We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time, when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. So it happened, as I lifted my voice and cried out, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was, when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. And the keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as we begin to examine the life of Joseph in Egypt, we have a chapter full of reversals, and the Holy Spirit seems to love reversals because we see them throughout the Scriptures. In fact, reversal is one of the major themes of the overarching story of Scripture. Adam sinned in the garden. He was tempted by Satan and gave in to the temptation, sinning against God's law. And by doing so, he brought death to all men. 
But Christ, the second Adam, reverses that. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but resisted the temptation, not giving in, but keeping God's law. And that was a reversal of Adam in the garden. Then he gave his life willingly as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of his elect to redeem them from the curse of the law and death. That was a reversal, a sinless man dying when he didn't deserve it. Then he rose from the dead, reversing death itself and giving life to his people in a reversal of the death brought about by Adam's sin. And in the end, Christ will return to reverse the effects of the curse and the fall on all of creation. He'll establish a new heaven and earth joined into one, emptied of the taint of man's sin and filled with the glory of God instead. The final reversal. And in anticipation of that reversal, those reversals that we see accomplished in Christ, there are other reversals in the scripture that anticipate that final reversal. Consider the story of Esther, with which we are all familiar. Haman is hanged in a gallows that he built for Mordecai, a reversal. Mordecai is then elevated to the position formerly held by Haman, another reversal. The Jews, under threat of death by their enemies, are allowed to defend themselves, defeat their enemies, and prosper, another reversal. The chiastic structure that we see all through the Psalms and other aspects of the Old Testament is itself a structure of reversal. And so it should come as no surprise to us when we get to the end of the book of Genesis and to the the life of the final patriarch that is related for us in this history that we would find a number of reversals. There are reversals here of the stories of Abraham Isaac and Judah. And in the midst of these reversals, we learn a very important lesson about the nature of sin, which is itself a reversal, a reversal in our thinking, because we cannot rightly understand sin unless we first understand the holiness of God, the righteous lawgiver. So there's the the ultimate reversal for us in this text. To understand sin, we must first understand the reverse of sin, the holiness of God. Now, we touched on this briefly last week in the story of Judah when we noted the nature of repentance to be a turning away from sin and towards God. And we said that the motivation and the means of accomplishing repentance was to focus on the very nature and character of God himself. In so doing, we see the beauty of of God's holiness and the ugliness of our sin in contrast, which reverses our not only our understanding, but the affections of our hearts and results in a reversal of our actions, the turning away from sin. And so I said last week that chapters 38 and 39 would work together. Chapter 38 demonstrating for us repentance, chapter 39 teaching us how to properly understand sin. We cannot understand sin rightly apart from an understanding of the holiness of God. So let's look briefly at uh, two other reversals in this chapter and then focus our attention on the main point, the reversal of our understanding regarding sin. 
First, let's consider how the events of this chapter serve as a reversal of events that we've seen previously in the lives of Abraham and Isaac. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham left the land of Canaan and went down to Egypt because of a famine. And while he was there, Abraham perpetrated a lie, if you'll remember. He told the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister, and this was a half-truth. He omitted the full truth, that she was his wife. And the scripture tells us that Sarah was, in chapter 12, verse 11, a woman of beautiful countenance. And because she was beautiful, what happened? Pharaoh took her into his house. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh figures out what the problem is. And so he calls Abraham in and calls him to account for his lie. And then he sends Abraham away with a blessing of wealth. The story continues, and a very similar incident happens then in chapter 12, where again, Abraham lies about his relationship with his wife. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, takes her into his house, and God then plagues Abimelech's house because of Sarah, so that all the women of his house are infertile. And then God warns Abimelech in a dream, and so he calls Abraham and Sarah and rebukes them for their lie and for their sin, and then he sends them away with a blessing. Then in chapter 26, we see a very similar incident in the life of Isaac. Because of a famine, God warns him not to go to Egypt, but he goes again to the king of the Philistines, known as Abimelech, and he lies about Rebekah, his wife, saying that she is his sister because she is beautiful to behold. And Abimelech then realizes the truth at some point, and he confronts Isaac, rebukes him for his sin that, of lying that could have led to the sin of adultery. And then Isaac is placed under Abimelech's protection and prospers and receives a blessing. Well, here in chapter 39, we see this scenario reversed in the life of Joseph. Here, instead of the patriarch's wife being beautiful to look at, it's Joseph himself. In verse 6, we are told now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Instead of a foreign ruler taking the patriarch's wife, in this case, it is the foreign ruler's wife who attempts to take Joseph. In verse 7, it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Instead of a plague on the household because of the patriarch's wife, instead we find a blessing on the household because of Joseph. In verse 5, so it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Instead of a foreign ruler confronting the patriarch for his sin, Joseph responds to Potiphar's wife by refusing to participate in sin. But he refused and then gives his reasons why in verses 8 and 9. Instead of the patriarch being sent away with a blessing, Joseph is now falsely accused and thrown into prison. In verse 20, then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. 
In Abraham and Isaac's case, it was the foreign ruler who acted with integrity to avoid sin, and it was the patriarch who sinned by telling lies. In this case, it's Joseph who acts with integrity and Potiphar's wife who lies. It's a dramatic reversal of the earlier stories, and it establishes for us the character of Joseph as an honorable and godly man, who we might even go so far as to say that his actions exceed the righteousness seen in Abraham and Isaac. He proves to be a man not only of faith, but of godly action. And this is significant because it foreshadows for us Christ, who would likewise be without sin, falsely accused, and suffer at the hands of foreign rulers. But God blessed the work of Joseph's hands. In verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. Again, this points the way forward to Christ who accomplished the work of redemption and received the blessing of a people promised to him by the Father. Jesus truly is the blessed man spoken of in Psalm 1, and Joseph is a foreshadow of that. This man hath perfect blessedness, who walketh not astray, in counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinner's way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but placeth his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. He shall be like a tree that grows near planted by a river, which in his season yields his fruit, his leaf fadeth never, and all he doth shall prosper well. We see this in the life of Joseph, and we see it accomplished in the life of Christ. Even more obviously, we have a reversal of the Judah narrative from the previous chapter. In chapter 38, Judah sees a woman and is tempted sexually. Here it is Potiphar's wife who casts longing eyes on Joseph. She then proceeds to attempt to seduce him into a sinful act. In chapter 38, we noted that Judah turned his feet out of the path and toward the temptation, thus sinning. But here we see Joseph doing quite the opposite. He not only rejects the temptation, but he turns from it, doing his best to avoid it. Look at verse 10. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. He does not consent to her ongoing overtures, but he also made no provision for the flesh, doing his best not even to be with her so as to avoid the temptation altogether, quite the reversal of Judah. And where Judah sinned and then tried to cover it up, losing his integrity and becoming a hypocrite, Joseph strives wholeheartedly to maintain his integrity. He goes so far as to twist out of his coat and flee the house. In verse 12, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. As Matthew Henry comments, it is better to lose a good coat than to lose a good conscience. Judah gave in to temptation and sinned, but Joseph reverses the narrative, resisting the temptation. And so we have these two reversals of the previous patriarch narratives in which Joseph is pictured for us as a man of integrity and godly character. And and this sets up for us the biggest reversal of all, and that is our understanding of the nature of sin. 
Judah taught us in chapter 38 about repentance, but Joseph will teach us to understand sin and to resist temptation. So let's be sure that we understand the situation in which Joseph finds himself. He has been sold into slavery by his brothers, taken down into Egypt. And now picture this. He is the beloved son of the father. He's the one that his dad doted on, favored him above the others. He had two dreams of his rise to rule and prominence. But now, this 17-year-old boy has been sold into slavery, taken far away from home, stripped, probably bound, standing on a platform in the midst of a slave auction, probably doesn't even understand the language being spoken by the crowd that is gathered around him, looking him up and down like a horse or a cow that is up for sale. And he's bought by this man Potiphar, who is highly placed in Pharaoh's court. Verse 1 says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him captain of the guard doesn't quite express the station that Potiphar holds. It means something along the lines of captain of the royal police, or more explicitly, chief executioner of the realm. This was the man who had charge of of Pharaoh's prisoners, political insurrectionists, traitors, anyone who was deemed a threat to Pharaoh was turned over to Potiphar to be imprisoned, tortured, or put to death. Notice at the end of the chapter when Potiphar puts Joseph in prison in verse 20, then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. He's not cast into a common prison. He's put into the prison where the enemies of Pharaoh are imprisoned. And if you turn the page into chapter 40, which we'll look at next Lord's Day, in verse 3 it says, So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. Now there is a warden over this prison, but this prison is under the authority of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. Now what all of this means is that Potiphar was a man accustomed to cruelty. This was the man who was in charge of torturing political prisoners, executing them for crimes against Pharaoh. This is not the kind of guy that you want to be enslaved to. And here, Joseph, this 17-year-old boy, far from home, has been sold into slavery to this man. But then verse 2 gives us some relief for poor Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. The Lord was with him and and brought him success in all that he did. Now, this should put us in mind of the story of Jacob serving Laban and God blessing him in all that he did. And and like Laban, Potiphar is no fool. He is a, a shrewd man and he soon notices the blessing that surrounds Joseph. And so it says in verse 3, And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. 
He was likely in Potiphar's household for a number of years. He had to learn not only to speak, but to read and to write the Egyptian language before he could very well manage all of Potiphar's affairs. It seems that he began simply as another slave in verse 1, but then in verse 2 he seems to have been promoted to serve in the house rather than in the field. And then in verse 4, it seems that he has become the personal slave of Potiphar himself, perhaps his valet, his secretary, and then eventually he is promoted to oversee the entire estate. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. So it appears that over the course of time, with the Lord's blessing, Joseph was promoted. And he comes to this position of ruling over Potiphar's estate as Potiphar's right-hand man. And we spoke about this several weeks ago when we introduced the life of Joseph, and we looked at several patterns in his life, and this was one of them, that he would continually be elevated to second in command, but never rule in his own right. So here is Joseph now running the entire estate of Potiphar, and God is blessing everything that he touches Verse 5, so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now that last sentence in verse 6 should strike us as somewhat ominous. Joseph not only held a place of esteem in Potiphar's household, but he was handsome as well. And every time we have seen the scriptures refer to a woman in the past, as we looked at in these previous narratives, as beautiful, there's always problems that arose. And the same is true here. As soon as we are told that Joseph is handsome, the trouble begins in verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. So after his rise to be the overseer of Potiphar's estate, which likely took a few years, 13 years will pass from the time Joseph is sold into slavery until he stands before Pharaoh. The Jewish commentators all say that he was in Potiphar's house for about eight to ten years, and then in prison for three to five years. So... In the course of eight to ten years, Joseph has not only risen to this prominent position of authority and honor, but he has also grown up. He went from being a 17-year-old teenager to a man in his prime somewhere around the age of 25. And so his master's wife looks at him with longing eyes and begins to attempt to seduce him. Joseph, however, refuses her advances, and he tells her why in verses 8 and 9. Now he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So the first reason that Joseph gives for refusing her is that it would be an offense against his master who has entrusted him with almost everything. Joseph does not want to betray that trust by taking the one thing that is off limits. 
Now there's a parallel here to Adam in the garden. In the garden, Adam was given authority over all things with the exception of one thing, one tree that was forbidden. Here, Joseph has been given authority over all things in Potiphar's house with the exception of one thing, Potiphar's wife. In both cases, the temptation is to take that one thing that has been forbidden rather than being content with all that has been given. Part of Joseph's response to this temptation is to express his thankfulness for what he has been entrusted with. So we can see then that thankfulness serves as an aid in resisting temptation. But the real key to Joseph's rejection of the temptation is in his understanding of sin. And we see this in the last sentence of verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? There are three important aspects of this statement that I believe will help us in our fight against temptation. First, notice that Joseph doesn't ask how she could possibly commit this sin. Instead, he focuses on his own part in it, asking how could he possibly do such a thing? How then can I do this? I who have received promises from God Almighty in my dreams. I who have been blessed by God in everything that I do. I who am in covenant with God by the promises made to my forefathers and typified in the act of circumcision. How can I do this? His concern is with his own responsibility before God, not hers. And we saw this same principle last week in regards to repentance. We must focus on our sin and not the sin of others. Joseph's object wasn't to stop her from sinning, but to prevent his own participation in her sin. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, He who is godly turns all his censures upon himself. He judges himself for his own sins, but is very careful and tender of the good name of another. Throughout the New Testament, we are repeatedly told to put to death our sin, to put off our old nature. Our fight against sin begins in our own heart. Speaking of the new covenant in Jeremiah, God says, In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. How odd would it be if I were to eat sour grapes and my daughters got that sour taste in their mouths? But in the new covenant, you will not be condemned for another person's sins. Your sins are your own, and it is your sins with which you must deal, resist, and if necessary, repent of. Joseph knows that he he won't be condemned for Potiphar's wife's sin. He must confront the temptation in his own heart. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life, Proverbs 4.2. If you focus on the sins of another, your attention will be diverted from guarding your own heart against temptation, and to leave your heart unguarded is neither safe nor wise. Lauren said to me last week after the sermon that it is much more fun to focus on the sins of others than it is to deal with your own. And she's right. 
But focusing on the sins of others, however much fun it may be, won't keep your heart in holiness. It will, in fact, make way for pride, which, as we saw last week, is at the root of all other sins. So here we see that Joseph guarded his own heart against temptation. The second thing we notice is that he acknowledges the truth of sin. It is a great wickedness. It's not a small thing. You can almost hear her arguments. Joseph, there's no one in the house but us. There's no one around. Who's to know? What he never finds out won't hurt him. What's the big deal? It's just one little thing. He's blessed in every way because of you. But as we saw last week and have seen so many times in our own lives, one sin will make way for more. Sins are linked and chained together and never in isolation. Judah gave in to the lust of the eyes and then sinned in multiple other ways, fornication, lying, hypocrisy. David likewise gave in to the lust of the eyes and then sinned in adultery, lying, and murder. One sin always leads to others. But even one sin is enough to condemn us. There is no sin so small that it does not deserve the wrath of Almighty God in the damnation of the sinner. Now, fortunately for us, there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven in Christ. But we must come to realize that to commit even one sin against God is a great wickedness. William Tyndall said that by giving the proposition its right name of wickedness, he made truth his ally. Joseph calls it what it is, a great wickedness. Have you noticed that we like to rename sins to make them sound less wicked than they are? Instead of bearing false witness or speaking lies, we just tell a little white lie. As if any lie is anything but black with sin. Instead of calling homosexuality an abomination or unnatural desire, as the scripture does, we call it gay which used to mean happy and carefree. Something that God says is an enslaving abomination our culture has identified as carefree and joy-filled. Our culture says that it's love, but God is love. Homosexuality is a great wickedness. This one always gets me. We call adultery having an affair. Is it a black tie affair? Is it a grand affair? Will there be fireworks? The Oxford American Writer's Thesaurus lists these synonyms for an affair. Relationship, love affair, romance, a fling, flirtation, dalliance, liaison, romantic entanglement, attachment, an affair of the heart. Do any of these make it sound like the great wickedness that it is? No. We must be truthful about sin. Sin's pedigree is from hell. It proceeds from the devil. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil. Sin is Satan's firstborn, and he who sins makes himself a son of Satan. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Joseph speaks the truth concerning the temptation. He calls it what it is, a great wickedness. And so must we, if we are truly desire to live godly lives, resisting temptation will be much easier if we are honest with ourselves about what that temptation is. And finally, and most importantly, Joseph recognized that sin was a great wickedness because he understood that all sin is against God rather than man. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph understands that the proposal being made would not only be an offense against Potiphar, but more importantly, a sin against God. So we must ask ourselves this question, what, what is sin? For the answer, we turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The Baptist Catechism explains this verse in question and answer number 17. What is sin? Answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is both a violation of the law of God and also a lack of conformity to it. Sin is committed by doing things that God forbids, but sin is also the omission of doing the right thing. And this is why the Catechism addresses each of the Ten Commandments, asking not only what is forbidden, but what is commanded. Consider these questions. Question 75, what is the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward. The command forbids adultery. Question 77, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So you can see that the answer in the catechism expresses the full extent of what is forbidden as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Not only the act of adultery, but our thoughts and words that are unchaste as well. But did you notice that I skipped from question 75 to 77? Here's question 76. What is required in the seventh commandment? Well, it's easy to see what is forbidden. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But have you ever stopped to consider what is required? If unchaste thoughts, words, and actions are forbidden, then their opposite is required. Here's the answer. The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. The commandment doesn't just forbid unchastity. It requires that we preserve chastity in our heart, our mind, our words, and our behavior, both for our own sake and as it relates to our fellow humans. Sin is both the transgression of what the law forbids, but also the lack of conformity to what it requires. And what the law requires is perfection. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, God's law is perfect and converts the soul and sin that lies. God's testimony is most sure and makes the simple wise. The statutes of the Lord are right and do rejoice the heart. The Lord's command is pure and doth light to the eyes impart. 
Unspotted is the fear of God and doth endure forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law of God is perfect, right, pure, true, and altogether righteous because God himself is all these things. The law simply reflects the character of the one who gave it. The reason that we have such a negligent view of sin is because we have such a low view of the holiness of God. Andrew Bonner once wrote, It is not the importance of the thing, but the majesty of the lawgiver that is to be the standard of our obedience. That is why I say that we cannot truly understand sin unless we first understand the holiness of God, the righteous lawgiver. God is, according to our confession, infinite in being and perfection. Therefore, our sin against him is infinite in wickedness and deserving of infinite justice. Have you ever wondered why the sins a person commits in their short life is punishable by eternal damnation? It's because those sins are against an eternal God. That is why they deserve eternal damnation. Stephen Charnock stated, God being the highest, most absolute, and infinite holiness, doth infinitely and therefore intensely hate unholiness. Being infinitely righteous, doth infinitely abhor unrighteousness. Being infinitely true, doth infinitely abhor falsity, as it is the greatest and most deformed evil. We cannot understand sin rightly unless we first understand the holiness of God. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges says, Holiness describes both the majesty of God and the purity and moral perfection of his nature. To view sin rightly, we must understand the purity and perfection of God. God is holy, holy, holy. He is altogether holy. He is distinct from his creation. Psalm 113 verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. His glory is above the heavens. Have you ever been online and and seen any of the, the images taken by NASA with their space telescopes? If you haven't looked at these, I encourage you to go home this afternoon and, and Google them. They're amazing. Just astonishing in their beauty. Stars, nebulas, entire galaxies, all pictured with amazing color and spectacular light. It will thrill not only your eyes, but your heart. God's glory is greater than these. It's above the heavens. Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens, God's glory do declare. The skies, his handiworks preach. Day utters speech to day, and night to night doth knowledge teach. The heavens declare his glory. They preach it. When you look at those images taken by those space telescopes, just remember that the purpose of all of that, all those stars and galaxies that we have to work so hard to even see, their purpose is simply to declare the glory of the one who made them. This is why Moses sings in Exodus 15, Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? The answer is no one. No one is like our God. 
He alone is glorious and worthy of all praise. He alone is holy, just, and true. In Him are found all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Holiness is the brightest crown, the brightest jewel in His crown. Holy and awesome is His name, Psalm 111, verse 9. To be holy is to be set apart as pure, without any impurity whatsoever. Only God is perfectly holy because only God is perfectly free from impurity. In his book, A Body of Divinity, which is an exposition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Puritan Thomas Watson outlined four main points concerning the holiness of God. So I'm following his outline here, and I encourage you to get a copy of that book and read the whole thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful read, well worth the time. First, he says that God is holy intrinsically. And what he means by that is that the holiness is God's very nature. It is who he is. He is singular. There is no other like him. He is holy because he is God. All that God does is holy. He never acts out of his character. He always acts according to his nature, which is holy holy, holy. And so all of his other attributes are defined by his holiness, his perfect purity. They're unstained, pure, not in any way mixed with impurity of any kind. His justice is holy. His love is holy. His knowledge is holy. His mercy is holy. His truth is holy. His goodness is holy. His judgment is holy. His patience is holy. We could go on and on. Every attribute of God is pure and perfect in His holiness. Second, God is holy primarily. In other words, He alone is the source of and the very definition of holiness. Holiness begins with God So we might rather say that holiness is defined by God rather than to say that God is defined by his holiness. All that God speaks, all that God says, all that God does is holy because he is God. His thoughts, his words, his actions cannot help but be holy. We call our Bible the Holy Scriptures because they are the words of a holy God. And since Scripture is the words of a holy God, it is perfect in all of its aspects. It is the most trustworthy, reliable, pure, and accurate source we have for beholding and understanding the nature of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, but the Scripture is God's direct, special revelation of Himself to mankind. It is in the Holy Scriptures that we behold the heart of God, the holiness of God, the excellency of Christ, the promise of God concerning our salvation. The scriptures are holy because they are the words of a holy God. Therefore, they are unlike any other words. They are altogether true, right, pure, good, and holy because the God who spoke them is true, right, pure, good, and the source of all holiness. Third, Watson says that God is holy efficiently. And what he means is that God's holiness produces holiness in others. He is the fountain and the source of all holiness in men and angels. Angels were created by God 
and yet some of them sinned and fell. They do not have holiness in and of themselves. Whatever holiness the elect angels have is a holiness that is given to them by God. Whatever holiness we might have in and of ourselves is given to us by God. God is not only the pattern of holiness, but he is the spring that feeds the streams of holiness in his people. Any holiness that we have is a good and perfect gift which comes down from above from the Father of lights. And fourth, God is holy transcendently. In other words, his holiness is incomparable. It is far above the holiness of the elect angels or the redeemed church. His holiness is altogether pure, unstained, unchanging, and full. God cannot be more holy than he is. He is perfectly holy. And he cannot be less holy than he is because he is immutably and unchangeably God. When we begin to get even a glimpse of the the holiness of God, we can begin to understand the ugliness of our sin. This is why Joseph regarded this proposed sin as such a great wickedness, because he saw the surpassing beauty of God's holiness. This is the ultimate reversal in our thinking. See, we like to see ourselves as good. We like to view ourselves as the hero in our own story. So we minimize our sin and we magnify our own greatness. The disciples did this, right? They, they walked down the road arguing about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine? They're following Jesus, the only perfect and holy person who ever lived, and they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. This is how blind we are. But if, like Joseph, we can catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, it will radically change our understanding of sin. And it will move us to ask this same question that Joseph does. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Knowing our failure to live up to the holy standards of God's law will drive us to our knees in dependence on the Holy One who lived for us, who gave His life for us and rose again that we might be free from the curse of sin and death. And just as we said last week that repentance means to turn away from sin and towards God, so too to resist sin we must turn from the temptation and towards God. We must look to Christ who is our righteousness and our salvation. And with the beauty of His holiness before our eyes, sin will lose its allure And we will be freed from its power so that we may live in obedience to Christ. May his name be praised forever. Let's pray.